0: pregnancy, and parenting with chronic illness. No topic will be off limits here. I'll also talk to other patients and share their stories and advice. Think of this as your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. Hi, everyone. I'm so excited to have Jen Jeff today from Savvy Co-op, and she is going to tell us all about why we should ask patients before thinking of solutions that benefit patients. Sounds obvious, but unfortunately, it is not to a lot of people in the medical system. So hi, Jen. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for coming. I know you have a really busy schedule. So let's just start with the basic introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your, what's your relationship to arthritis? Yeah, well, that's a first and
1: foremost, I am a patient. So I was diagnosed as an infant with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, along with several other uh, related autoimmune diseases, which perhaps your listeners are well aware of things like Sjogren's syndrome and ankylosing spondylitis and fibromyalgia and Raynaud's and uveitis, that's a big one for me, all that kind of good stuff. So I'm fully ingrained in the arthritis space with my own lived experiences. And then I went on to go work in healthcare and specifically in rheumatology
0: for the very beginning of my career. That's incredible. And yeah, one thing that's unique about you is that you have your PhD, which is a huge accomplishment. Um, and I know a lot of people listening are also thinking about career paths and, um, what was it like to get, to balance getting your PhD while balancing your chronic illnesses?
1: Well, getting a PhD is horrible, um, (laughs) regardless of any sort of chronic illness, at least that was my personal experience. Um, Shout out to my advisors as they were listening, to, who made my life uh, very special for many years. Um, no, no. It's something just as you pursue anything, be it higher education or any different type of you know career that you may be having, it's just trying to understand the goals that you have personally and then ideally you're able to just figure out how to get there. It just might look differently. I think that's my sort of big takeaway for people that are looking to pursue their dreams. I fully believe that you should be able to, it's just that it might not look the same as like a peer that's trying to pursue the same path because you need to account for other things like rest and taking it, you know, at your own pace. So it's tough, but the best advice I could give is just not to compare yourself to those around you and just, chart your own path. That is,
0: that is such wise advice. I love that. And what is your PhD in again? Well, it's a mouthful and yeah. it doesn't necessarily make sense. It's technically in environmental medicine,
1: but what okay. I was studying and sort of my background, my master's was in ergonomics and biomechanics. So human factors is really what I was studying. And I was drawn to that because of having arthritis and human factors is sort of the science of trying to fit the world. To the person as opposed to the other way around of like people especially those with arthritis just like trying to live their life for people in a world that was not designed for people with arthritis and so that to me was really frustrating as a patient with arthritis and so that was why i was drawn to human factors and trying to make the world more accessible for those people that maybe have limited mobility or impairments or just different mobility needs and then environmental medicine sort of built upon that And what I was studying is known as patient-centered outcomes, which means what matters to patients, which is obviously as we as patients know that what our doctors care about, what insurance companies care about, all of these things may differ wildly from what the patient cares about. And so we have to take the time to understand what patients care about, what their priorities and preferences are so that we can develop new therapies, new drugs, new solutions, to help meet their needs. So that's what I was doing in my academic
0: Let's talk a little bit about, yeah, how you formed Savvy Co-op. So you went from this, you know, academia sometimes is a little out of touch with like the real world, but you were actually able to apply your PhD, you know, research and passion and everything you learned there into the formation, it sounds like, of Savvy. But I guess I'm jumping ahead of myself. So what is Savvy Co-op? You got it. So, well, Savvy is a patient-owned public benefit co-op
1: which I know is a mouthful, but that means that we are collectively owned by patients. So it's a little bit different than your typical patient advocacy organization, which is a, usually a 501 C three nonprofit. It's different from your typical corporation, like a Amazon or whatnot, Mm -hmm. which is a different type of incorporation. A co-op is that it's a co-op. It's its own structure, which means that it's owned by its members and the reason why we started as a cooperative is because what we do as a company is we help to connect companies and innovators and researchers, connect directly with the patients or caregivers they're trying to build for. So if somebody is building a new, let's I'll give you a hypothetical example, but it's a real one, that uh, if somebody was building, say, a new biological syringe or an auto-injector, Why don't we actually get people with arthritis or Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or MS who might use this to give feedback on it prior to making it so that then when you get it and you're like cool I can't even open the package like we should be doing that work up front and so that's what savvy does across all different conditions to say hey innovators before you build something let's go talk to patients hey, innovators, while you're building it, let's go talk to patients. And oh, you're gonna do some marketing campaigns? Well, let's talk to patients then. So we're trying to make it super easy and accessible for these companies or innovators to talk to patients at every juncture. And so where the co-op ties back in is if you think about it, it's really, it's all the patients that are doing the work behind Savvy. So that's why we wanted to make sure that they could become co-owners of our organization so that they get to have a say in what we do and they actually earn
0: dividends. They're going to share in our profits as Savvy grows. That's really incredible. And I know one of your mottos is ask patients, which I love that you're, you know, um, as a patient, again, it seems like, wait a minute, this should be obvious. Like, why does somebody need to advocate for this? But um, as your experience has shown that uh, sometimes people kind of get their, um, they, you know, they get in their little silos, or maybe they're thinking about you know, their own profit motives or something else. And they're not necessarily thinking, is this actually going to be useful? I mean, the example of the syringes is is a perfect one, or there's so many memes online of, you know, like, I can't open the medication container for the medicine that would solve the problem of why I can't open it, you know? (laughs) And I know that, you know, when you spoke at the American College of Rheumatology or American uh, Alliance of Rheumatology Professionals um, Conference, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I loved hearing you talk about it's not enough just to try to get maybe like one little quote unquote token patient's opinion because like, and I know I've been asked a lot of times, I love sharing my opinion and my story, but I am, you know, a cisgender privileged white woman, you know, so if everyone just asks the same kind of profile of patient, then they're they're not hearing other voices. So yeah, I mean, (laughs) the way that we help people kind of understand that is like, look, if you're only
1: talking to a subset of the population, then you're only innovating for a subset of the population. And you know, you've know you drawn the exact example for why I started Savvy was I was also being asked to speak on behalf of all patients with arthritis because I already had a seat at the table. So I recalled like, that's the kind of work I was doing professionally. Right. So I was like, hey Jen, will you be that patient for this committee or that project? And it's like, sure, but actually there are 54 million Americans with arthritis and I cannot possibly represent all of them. So why don't we go and understand those unique needs, either be it by diagnosis, race and ethnicity, geographic location, um, disease duration. Like when were you diagnosed? How long have you had the disease? What kind of medications have you taken? What kind of insurance do you have? All of these different things that weigh into it. Socioeconomic status, health literacy. You know, there's so many different things when we think about sort of the diversity of perspective. And I think that that's where what we try to help innovators understand is like, okay, well, who exactly are you trying to reach? And let's take, if they say something like, Oh, well, we just want to talk to RA patients. Then we, what we do is we help them understand. Okay. So, you know, we'll go and find two people that are, you know, doctor diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, but we're going to also ask them all these other demographic questions so that if you're talking to 20 people, you'll know that you'll have representation from all of these different types of demographics so that you can start to see if there are areas that maybe you need to go deeper. you know we certainly know that we need to do a lot more work in black Latinx Native American communities so actually mm-hmm. what we're doing a lot of at savvy these days is really talking specifically to many of these types of individuals so that we can understand sort of the unique needs of these different populations. and so it, it all just depends on kind of what the project is and helping those innovators or researchers understand that one person, and even a, a group of people can't speak on behalf of everybody, but it's a step. And we just try to get people to understand, okay, well, you did that, take it back, reflect on you know what you're missing, and then you just iterate on it and keep building upon kind of the insights that you're getting.
0: That's so great. And- I, I want to take a minute to kind of walk through step-by-step. Step. Let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, oh, I love sharing my opinion. Like, right, we just go on the internet. People love sharing their opinions. <laughs> and as a healthcare patient, I see a lot of other patients all the time saying, you know, I wish doctors did this. I wish my, I wish pharmaceutical companies did, did that. So what you're providing... Um, is an opportunity in a more formal way instead of just kind of shouting to the internet which is fun I do it all the time (laughs) but you're providing a formal way for them to give that feedback so if someone's like oh my gosh yes I want to you know to get my voice heard how how would they do that through savvy like what would be like the step-by-step
1: Well, uh, not that this is meant to be a plug, but the first step is we go to (laughs) savvy.coop, S-A-V-V-Y dot C-O-O-P. That's our website. And then you would first just sign up. And so you would sign up to be on our mailing list. We actually release new gigs every Monday. So every Monday in your inbox, you will see a list of all the different new opportunities to share. And some of them are disease specific, but many of them are things like, you know, tell us about nutrition or testing out a new app. I know that we're rolling out right now, um, an app to help sort of track things around COVID-19. So that could be something that could be applicable for a lot of people. And that's why Savvy is disease agnostic, because obviously uh, your listeners are not just people with arthritis. They have either other comorbidities or other interests and all of this matters. And so you'd see all those different opportunities. And what happens is if there is an opportunity that somebody's interested in they can select that and they fill out some an- or some questions about you know either their diagnosis or various different types of qualifying information so that we can make sure that you're the right patient to talk to these innovators. And then if you're selected, you get notified. And depending on what it is, sometimes it's a survey, sometimes it's an interview, sometimes it's an online discussion board that you're kind of weighing in on, all these different things. But we're really trying to make it more direct with those innovators, as opposed to kind of what you're talking about, let's say it's in a, a Facebook group or something, which is also super valuable just to be able to share your experience with other patients. But we want, we don't want even just like an innovator to say, oh yeah, I like looked at somebody's Facebook conversation and now I know everything there is to know about arthritis. Ain't wrong. So Mm -hmm. we really want to make sure that there are, are direct ways to connect with those patients. And- I would be remiss if I did not acknowledge the fact that after you take part in whatever project it is, you get paid because we stand on a soapbox that patients should be fairly valued for their time and expertise. Your experiences have value. And so we do not take on projects that are like, oh, well, patients should just share this out of the goodness of their heart. Well, cool. They might do that, but also, like, they have bills to pay, and their time matters. And so, we really have been helping innovators understand that, like, you're going to pay other doctors, or designers, or statisticians, or app developers, because they all have value. Well, so do patients. And so, that's what uh, you know is really important for our cooperative to maintain its integrity is to protect the best
0: interests of patients. It's just a, a beautiful bridge you've built between the, in, the quote-unquote innovators, like the companies you know, that are providing these solutions, whether it's an app or a syringe for the medication, and then the bridge between that and the patients. Because it can become, and I think you, you and I both know as patients, it can you can kind of get into your echo chamber, right? So you find a patient Facebook group and you're like, oh, finally these people understand me. And that's beautiful and so powerful. But then if all you do is just kind of Echo back and forth, like, no one understands us. Yeah, this sucks. Like we're in so much pain. Then, like, again, on the on the mental health side, it can be really validating to feel like you're not alone. But then the flip side of that is that there can lack like a constructive element to it, you know, where it's like, okay, well, let's take this pain and channel it into a better solution in the future, which seems like what you're doing.
1: (laughs) And what we really love doing is after these projects, which we call gigs. So it's a gig that you're doing. And after the gig, we like to get follow-up from both sides. You know, imagine it's like an Airbnb stay back when people travel. I love that. Yeah, that's a great analogy. (laughs) Yeah, But afterwards, you know, both sides kind of get to rate like how to go, any sort of feedback to give. But also really what matters to us is that our our, um, clients are able to share back with patients and say, hey, thanks so much for participating in this interview. Because of you and the others that participated, we learned X, Y, and Z. And that's informing us to roll out a new app or a new service or whatever it might be, because that is super validating to patients to know that their experiences had an impact too often in healthcare research, be it clinical trials or other sort of research, we just take from the patients, we take their data and we squirrel it away and we never tell them what happened with it. We don't follow up at all. And so it's like, why in the world would a patient want to participate again? Because they're like, did, did that matter? Like I spent my time doing that, but like for what? So we really want to make sure that patients understand that they had an impact because it's really empowering.
0: That's, that's so beautiful. And it's so congruent with some experiences I've had as well. You know, you want to know, yeah, did, did my feedback, even if you just provide, do that little doctor survey after the visit, you know, you want to know, did anyone actually read this? Did anything change as a result? If you had like a quote unquote patient complaint, or, you know, a, if you wrote a letter that was like a suggested improvement for oh. your, you know, you want to to have a connection to it. So I love that it doesn't just, the interaction doesn't just end when you take the survey, you know, you, or provide your input, you're actually able to see the outcome of that. And it's, yeah, it just really elevates the patient voice and makes that it seem like, you know, we, we value you as the expert in your care. It's kind of a new concept that, that patients are quote unquote, the experts in their care, right? Like in the olden days, it was like the doctors are the experts. They just tell us what to do. We have to do it. So what does like patients being the expert in their care mean to you? I guess. Well, I think it's something
1: that we should know all along, but over the past several years, there has been sort of a movement towards what the industry kind of knows as patient centricity, meaning that, you know, the industry cares about patients. I can't really give you a better definition than that because everybody talks about it differently and says that their company is patient centered, but, you know. The verdict is out on what they do to actually deliver on that. And Mm -hmm. so what we're really trying to get them to understand is just that, that like, if you believe you're patient-centered, you should also be believing that the patients actually know what they're talking about. They know how to describe their symptoms. They may not have the same medical jargon, but that's not only okay, it's the point. It's like, let's hear how people are talking about their own condition in a way that also really is informative to those innovators to understand the, the lexicon, the syntax that a, an individual is talking about with these things. You know, I'll give you an example in rheumatology is that for the longest time, fatigue was never mentioned. Fatigue is, can be debilitating. And you know, I don't just say from my own personal experience, while you know, my disease, my arthritis may be under control and from like a pain you know, range of motion, joint swelling, all that kind of stuff, like the fatigue can sometimes be the number one um, symptom that I have. And so it's something that over the years, we finally got that incorporated into thing like things like clinical trial outcome measure sets. And so what a clinical trial outcome measure set is, is sort of like a fancy term for, you know, what are we measuring when we conduct a clinical trial? And so clinical trials are a way to Test out, sort of, usually it's an experimental drug to see if it's both safe but also effective. And these things take like 15 years to come to market. So, like, I feel like after the pandemic, people are going to have serious expectations about drug development because this is bananas that we are bringing a vaccine to, to market in less than a year. So know that that is not a norm. I hope it can be. But usually these kind of things from developing it in the lab to getting it, you know, through all the different phases of a clinical trial and to, to market is like 10 to 15 years. And so that's why if people don't do it right up front, If those innovators, let's say at a pharma company are not saying, hey, what matters to patients? Should we measure fatigue? And they're like, nah, we don't need to measure fatigue. And then 15 years later, this drug comes to market and now you're sitting in your doctor's office and that doctor says, "You know, here are these two drugs that I'm considering for you. There's drug A and drug B. You're like, great doc, I want the one that gives me less fatigue, which one is that? And they go, oh well, we never measured that or, you know, the pharma company and the investigators never measured it. So I can't tell you. And you're like, well, then I don't have the information that I need to make a decision. So this is a long winded way of saying that patients know what they want. They know what they're living with. But if we're not listening to them, then it becomes moot. And we put all the onus on those patients to then like follow their treatment plans and, and all of these things. But yet we haven't we haven't done the work to understand what they need.
0: I was shocked, honestly, when I asked, I asked my provider, like, which medicines are, yeah, which, which of these medicines actually work on fatigue? Because my experience, my patient experience with rheumatoid arthritis initially was, I guess, more the textbook, which is what they used to think is if you respond well to like the drug therapy that is that, that improves inc- your pain levels and stops inflammation then your fatigue will just move in tandem with that so no pain equals no fatigue lots of pain equals more fatigue too because they're all it's kind of like a, a vent or Venn diagram where they're like the root cause is overlapped. Yeah. Ver- where so I that was my experience on my first biologic. I was like, oh, I felt horrible before. Now I feel amazing. No worries forever. <laughs> then my other with my other medication since since then, that was like the only time I've been in complete medicated remission. I've realized yeah, how complicated it is. I'm like, well, there's some of the medicines I've been on that work really great for pain, but not fatigue or vice versa. So when I asked my provider, yeah, which, well, how many of them are approved for both versus one? He's like, oh, only one of them is approved FDA approved for fatigue right now. I was like, what? (laughs)
1: Like, so I used to serve on the FDA's um, advisory committees, one of them being the arthritis advisory committee. And so people actually think that so what would happen with an advisory committee is that for certain products that are looking for FDA approval, that sometimes when the FDA is like, "Ooh, we don't exactly know, we want some input from other stakeholders, they bring it to an advisory committee. And at that time, then the sponsor, which is a pharma company, presents their data, the FDA kind of presents the same data, but from their perspective, and then sort of the stakeholders, weigh in. And those are doctors, like clinicians, rheumatologists, um, statisticians, epidemiologists, patients like myself, um, those kinds of folks are weighing in. Now, what we say doesn't actually approve it or disapprove it. So we vote and we say like, yeah, we should approve it. Well, the FDA gets final say, but they hopefully take into account what the advisory committee is suggesting. So all that being said, when I was serving, really kind of my biggest question always was, what kind of more quality of life measures did you ask? And, you know, I served for many, many years and over time I saw it shift a little bit, but remember again that this, even though I was serving for many years, those uh, drug trials started years and years before that. So they had to have kind of like evolved over time. But what was interesting was a couple things. Number one, There were times that after the the pharma company gave their presentation and I would ask like, did you measure things like fatigue or activity levels or any of these sort of, you know, what they think of as like these kind of fluffy measures. What was interesting is sometimes they said yes and then they would go into like their slide deck and pull up what's kind of like a supplemental slide of like if I need it, but they didn't present it as part of their initial presentation. And it was almost baffling to me because, these meetings are actually open to the public where should any of you listeners be interested, you can log on to the FDA's advisory committee schedule, see the different things on the you know, docket and you can tune in and you can listen. And so it was wild to me that they wouldn't take that opportunity to spend like literally two minutes. You could have presented a slide and said, yes, and we asked patients about quality of life. And we saw that, you know, on this medication, their quality of life measures improved 10 points over those that were on standard of care. Quick and easy, but it's like, oh, thank you for caring. So some of them actually did measure these things, but they just like didn't think it was important enough to share. which. I was always begrudged at. Um, so I'm glad that there's now sort of more of a movement towards measuring them, but time will tell how much weight and importance is put on it. We actually do know that the FDA is now, you know, really making claim that they do care about patient engagement, but they actually stop short of telling pharma companies how like what their expectations are. They just say like, yes, we we think patient engagement is great. And those pharma companies usually go, well, tell us how to do it. And they don't. And so then a lot of pharma companies go like, ooh, too scary, and they won't do it. So we're trying to shift that and keep nudging people in the right
0: direction. That totally makes sense that I have to put a little plug in for occupational therapists because, like, that is literally our entire goal is quality of life, like through engagement in daily, meaningful daily activities and routines. You know, that's our like definition of what occupation is like a fancy word for, you know, meaningful daily activities. And so, yeah, it ba- I'm extremely baffled by it as both a patient and an occupational therapist when quality of life isn't looked at as the most important outcome, but like a lot of patients make fun of the commercials um, as kind of like a therapeutic humor (laughs) intervention for themselves to say, oh my gosh, like they're running through fields of sunflowers. But if you look at those commercials, they're, they're pointing to quality of life, right? They're like, I can hold my grandbaby's hand again, or I can, I can ride a bike. I can like, that's the idea is to engage in life. And so why are they not, or why, yeah, why is that not the primary goal.
1: Well, I think, you know, it's interesting too, if we take arthritis as we should be in this conversation, um, as the example where there have been such advances that, you know, do those, you know, measures of yesteryear hold true anymore. And because I did a lot of like scientific research in rheumatology, what I would find is some of them are really kind of outdated. Mm -hmm. The ones that are looking like, you know, the, Health assessment questionnaire and whatnot. Mm-hmm. That's like button your shirt. Which I'm not saying that that is easy for everybody, but for a lot of people because the treatments that you know, when I was a child, it was gold shots. Gold shots were the treatment, and then NSAIDs. and then flash forward decades later, and now we've got biologics and actual like medically controlled remission. So, so are these questionnaires and, or other assessments? Are they sensitive enough? To recognize the advances that rheumatology has had. And the problem is, is that they then have sort of either like a ceiling or floor effect, meaning that Mm -hmm. they can only, they can only understand like up to a certain level and then they kind of, they kind of aren't helpful anymore. And so the challenge that perhaps your listeners are thinking of like, okay, cool. Well, let's like redo some of those assessments because Now let's, let's change them so that we can get, you know, really granular and understand what is the next level of like rheumatology and like treat to target. But the problem is, is those measures, I told you how long clinical trials take to come to market. Well, it takes a long time, maybe not as long, but like to develop out new outcome measures, because you have to do all these tests to like, make sure that they do what they want them to do. And I'm not going to call like research colleagues lazy, but in the interest of time, they're oftentimes like, well, no, we don't have time to do that, so we'll just keep using the old measure. And so part of it is that like innovations are moving fast ish for you know healthcare research. Mm-hmm. But the measures that we're using are kind of getting outdated. And so we have to figure out how to get those sort of up to speed so that when those patients are saying, you know, I don't want to just be able to button my shirt. I want to be able to go run that marathon. I want to be able to sculpt all day long. Cause that is like my hobby or my occupation. Like we need to be able to get more granular because a lot of those assessments really are triggered more about like, can you just like function, but how can we help people not just function, but you know, Excel and do all the things they want to do.
0: Oh, completely. I, I just in the last you know, I've been seeing my rheumatologist for 18 years um, and I've noticed at first they had that health assessment questionnaire, the part that's just like, can you open a faucet? Can you put on, your, you know, can you put on your clothes? Can you wash your, and dry yourself? And I'm like, yeah, only when I've been the most severe, could I not do some of those things. But then, and, and so I was kind of as an occupational therapist, it was such like a mixed feeling. Cause I was like, well, I'm, I'm glad you're like, you're like close. <laughs> you're asking about something to do with my actual life, but it's like you said, it's too much of a ceiling effect or floor effect, whichever one is the one where it's not sensitive <laughs> enough. And so, but in the recent years, I wanted to point out that the thing I really like is that they added the bottom, a little uh, line that says, considering all the ways in which health and disability affect your life, how would you rate your life right now? On a, like, and again, it's just, you just get to put a little X mark and I'm like, cause I've had days or times when it's everything's a zero or a one very minimal problems in doing the very basic tasks like buttoning and, and turning on a faucet, but considering all the ways yeah. and I would be like at a 40% of full health and quality of life. So it's a way for us as patients to actually indicate that, like, wait, you're not getting the whole picture here. Um, so I don't know if that's officially been a part of it. If that's just my doctor's office, that's done that.
1: Yeah, no, 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 it is. Well, oh. it is. some, some folks use that as like an official way. They use that dose both for doctors as like a catch-all and for patients mm. to ask them sort of this overarching, like, because same thing with doctors, they actually have the same things where, you know, based on your labs or this or that, they're kind of scoring what a patient gets. Mm-hmm. But then they have what they call the physician global assessment, which there's a lot of controversy around, you know, to, do two physicians even rate that the same way? Yeah. Like that's where like, you know, sure, you may look fine, but they talk to you like, you know, something's not quite right. Sure, your labs look fine. I'm kind of describing myself like <laughs> my <labs laughs> look fine, but they're like, oh, something's just off here. So they can use that as sort of like a catch-all. Um, but, but it's tough. And those things kind of rarely make their way into um, clinical trials or things like that. But, but it's tough. And this isn't unique to rheumatology. In fact, I could share. So um, Ronnie Sharp, my business partner at Savvy Cooperative has cystic fibrosis. And I've learned a lot about cystic fibrosis in our time working together. And so he's actually been in like dozens and dozens of clinical trials. Uh, cystic fibrosis is a rare disease, but has had a lot of innovation. And right now, I guess the clinical trial was like almost two years ago, but I watched his life change completely because of this new drug. And it was wild. Like I can't even express, and it's not even my life, but I've watched it change him. Wow. But even, he'll share the fact that what he might rate between like his, so with cystic fibrosis, it's affecting your lungs and your ability to sort of clear, I'm gonna butcher this, but like clear, clear the like mucosa and whatnot from your, your lungs. And so they're looking at lung function. And so his lung function at two different times could sort of be rated the same, but he would tell you right now, like his life is so different. He can do whatever he wants versus before when it's like, yeah, my lung function is is what it is, But you know, I can't play with my kids, I can't get on the ground without risking my lungs bleeding and all these different types of things. And so that is hugely different. And so how do we you know, discern between those
0: different things? And a lot of the time we're just not equipped with the right questions to formally ask patients. I'm going to have to talk to some of my occupational therapy friends. I know we have, as occupational therapists, a lot of really detailed assessments for quality of life and ability to engage. And um, and not just like in terms of functional independence, like, again, can you self-dress, but actual engagement in like what we call instrumental activities of daily living, which are the ADLs, activities of daily living are like the tiny little ones, like, you know, can you, or the most basic, you know, can you put on your pants, you know, uh, versus the instrumental ones are care of children, care of pets, care of finances, health management and maintenance. So it's just, I want to help connect some of these dots because maybe we should be getting some of those again, outside of our little silo everyone i'm interrupting really quickly to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by the rheumatoid arthritis roadmap it's a comprehensive online education and support program that i created from scratch to help people learn how to live a full life despite rheumatoid arthritis in the course you get to learn how to manage everything from physical symptoms like pain and fatigue to social and emotional aspects of living with rheumatoid arthritis I even cover the logistics of things like how to track symptoms and how to advocate for yourself in medical appointments. To learn more, go to myarthritislife.net. One of the things I usually talk about with somebody who's a patient, whether or not they're also like an expert in another area is your kind of personal journey, your personal journey with juvenile idiopathic arthritis. I would love to just hear a little bit more like the evolution of, you know, you said your, your JIA is somewhat well-controlled now, um, and, but when you're younger, you were younger, you did the gold shots and you lived through some of them less, um, advanced times. So can, I don't know if there's a way to summarize. <laughs> I mean,
1: yeah. Setting the stage, I was diagnosed in what, 85. And so things were very different then, um, the expectations for kids were very different then, uh, I got involved in sort of arthritis advocacy and volunteerism as, uh, you know, late teen, early young adult. And my world changed then because I hadn't met anybody with arthritis. And it's interesting because, you know, in later in life, I asked my mom, like, why didn't we participate in things like camps or conferences or other events? And she said very earnestly to me that she did not want to see what her kid was going to turn out like, because back then the majority of my peers were in wheelchairs or, you know, had significant deformities. And Mm -hmm you know i i actually credit a lot of my prognosis to the fact that despite the fact that my um early physicians again doing the best they could sort of advised me not to be active because the the mindset in the 80s was like don't move you're going to hurt yourself so instead my parents enrolled me in dance because they just wanted to get me out the door and i had an older sister that needed to do something too meanwhile everybody else in my kind of like community and town, they all played soccer and did gymnastics. And I was not allowed to do either of those things. But, you know, dance now is like super early proprioceptive training, like motor skill training. And so it was actually wonderful for me and gave me, you know, confidence in the ability to do things that I wanted to do. I went on and became a dance major in college as well. I danced professionally. So it's something that this is kind of like my, the story of my life is that when people tell me I can't do something, I then like double down into it. So it was one of those Love things too. I remember in high school when I was flaring, um, both my parents, again, well-meaning and physicians, said, you know, perhaps you should pull back from some of your academic course load because it could be really challenging and we don't know how much school you're going to miss. And, you know, I was always that like, you know, super... Top student type uh, mentality, and so I was like, no. And mm-hmm. so I think that that's you know part of the drive that I'm like, well, you know, screw that, I'm going to get a PhD instead. So that's where I think that for me it really was kind of like a motivator. But I also said that my path looked very different from my peers, so it would have to be. I mean, I withdrew from undergrad. I got sick and had to withdraw one semester. Um, but then I, I actually made up the time. I graduated early after all of that. I graduated in three years instead of four, even though I missed a semester. So wow. I just like, I will, you know, it was hard, but I I wanted to take things in you know a different direction then. So I don't know, I just, I think that it's been ups and downs and I've, yeah, failed a lot of medications, especially with early biologics before we knew things about combination therapy being important. I would mm-hmm. kind of cycle through all the biologics and they probably about every 11 months for me, they would become ineffective until we kind of learned that you'd need some sort of DMARD in there to kind of help, help uh, balance things out. But mm-hmm. I don't know, it's something that I just got used to. And I think it's something that I tell like parents and kids for sure. Well, the parents of children is that what your child is experiencing is very different from what you as the parent is experiencing. And I, I'm not a parent, so I don't actually know that, but I know that the anxiety and guilt and burden that my mother feels, I try to alleviate from her because I have a fantastic life. I have, you know, accomplished a lot that I recognize. Um, it again, it's been challenging. I've been in and out of the hospital. I, my plans have changed. I actually had a brain tumor removed while I was doing my PhD.
0: Um, that was fun. So, wow. Yeah. I remember that. That's yeah. why I, I think I met you when at the juvenile <laughs> Authorized conference, just when you had been, receiving treatment for that. I can't remember, but yeah, I remember being like, geez, what's the universe going to throw It's like, but the universe throws stuff at you and you are just like, okay, well, that's not going to stop me. Yeah. You know, and everybody's going to identify in different ways. Like for me,
1: well, let me back up. I understand why many people say like, my disease does not define me. And I respect that for me. My disease actually does, but in a really powerful way. I really own my situation because it has opened so many doors for me. I have really been able to have a seat at a lot of tables I probably wouldn't otherwise. I've been able to be in experiences that have shown me, oh, I wanna go do that. Like I've had such a random meandering path between being a dancer or consultant or an academic. and doing FDA stuff and uh, running a company I never thought I would do, but like, you know, I've never been prescriptive about it. Like I thought I was gonna be a doctor, you know, as a sick kid, um, but I was actually disenchanted by that because I saw that my providers couldn't even practice the medicine that they wanted to do because of the limitations of our system, especially here in the United States. And so I was like, well, I'll go do something else. And I had re- I've had a great support system. I think that like my parents have always, you know, they're like, okay, you're going to go be a dancer. Cool. Like we'll be here to help support you. So I know my privilege that like, should I need anything? I could always have support from my, my family. Um, I've had great health insurance that has allowed me to do these things. I cannot, uh, speak highly enough about this, that I've been able to do these things because I've not been attached to an employer in the same way that others may be because of where they get their health insurance and that's a whole nother thing to unpack, uh, for another day. Yeah, But but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's something that your disease does not have to hold you back. It's just accepting that perhaps you just, your pathway might look a little different.
0: That's, that's beautiful. And one of my favorite questions to ask, um, I mean, a, a lot of what you've already talked about would speak to newly diagnosed patients, but really specifically, you know, what would you, what message would you like to share maybe with newly diagnosed patients who might be like, oh my gosh, you know, I had my life planned out. it was gonna be a certain way. And then this diagnosis has just hit me and I'm freaking out. I mean, that's tough because actually I have not had that perspective. I was We're- thinking that as I asked it, yeah, yeah. You're you like, did. well, at 11 months I had my life all planned out. I was gonna yeah, play you know, every day. A
1: little big <laughs> genius. No, I didn't. And so I fully appreciate that I do not understand that perspective. I mean, certainly there have been times in my life where my disease was under control and then I flare and you're like, oh, great, this again. Um, but it's always something that, you know, kind of in the back of my mind has been smoldering and about like, well, what if, what if, what if? Um, so I don't I don't have a great way to, to share on that, except for the fact that I don't, if I can draw on my experience that it has not limited me from doing what I wanted to do, I think it's just taking the time to reflect and grieve is completely acceptable and necessary um, to I just acknowledge the fact that life sucks sometimes and it's okay to go there, but then to try to step back and see that there, again, are probably still ways to get to where you wanna go, but yeah, your plans were probably put in a jar and shaken up and it is what it is, but you just find a
0: path forward idea of grieving is so important. And I think there's definitely a lot of pressure, especially on like social media. And I try to like, I, I, I kind of sprinkle like realistic acceptance and then like, yeah, I sprinkle a little bit of inspiration in, but i really don't like, and I, I think I've kind of got the flavor from you before that you probably also don't like this kind of idea that like, I got diagnosed with this, but I'm just going to overcome it. And I'm just going to think positive and I'm going to conquer it. And then blah, blah, blah. Like, it's like, there's almost like a toxic positivity sometimes for newly diagnosed. Yeah
1: everybody can take their own approach to it. But, you know, I think it's like the whole social media effect, right? Like, what we portray on here is not reality. And that's um, challenging when you live with chronic illness. And all you want to know is that you're not alone. You don't need anything else. You don't need somebody to solve your problems. You just want to know that this is normal, and just validate that you are going through this. And so I think that that is why it's so wonderful that you're doing you know, podcasts like this, and all the other work that you're doing, and probably so much work that your listeners are doing too, just to help be that normalizer for the next person that is coming into this community they didn't mean to be part of. Yeah, that's beautiful.
0: Yay! Well, thank you so so much. And then, um, yeah, and I'm gonna—I always put this stuff in the show notes, but just in case someone's like an auditory learner, where can they find out more? I mean, you did say savvy. Um, s-a-v-v-y dot c-o-o-p for the website is there anywhere else you'd want people to check out you personally or savvy yeah i mean you can follow us on social um for savvy it's s-a-v-v-y
1: underscore c-o-o-p that's Mm -hmm. both our twitter and instagram um you're welcome to follow me if you care um Mine is you got to spell it because nobody knows my last name, but it's J Jeff J H O R O N J E F F. That's my Twitter and Instagram handle. Uh, Twitter, you and you know, should you be on LinkedIn, you're welcome to find me there. Twitter and LinkedIn, I speak about more professional things. Instagram, wow.
0: get ready for my cats. We're all full human beings, right? None of us exactly. is just like, oh, I am an arthritis patient and I think about arthritis 24-7 and nothing else is important in my life, you know? Yeah. So that's wonderful. And just thank you again for all the work you're doing. Um, it's been, it's a pleasure knowing you over the last half decade, I guess, is I, I think I- that introduced you longer than that, maybe decade. Yeah. I don't yes. know. What is time again? Exactly.
1: I don't know, but I, it's a, as I was gonna say, it feels like a long time, but for a good reason, it's been wonderful to see all the great things that you've been doing for the community. So thank you for really
0: making a space for patients to, to understand that they're not alone. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the arthritis life podcast. This episode is brought to you by the rheumatoid arthritis roadmap, an online course that I created from scratch to help people live a full life with rheumatoid arthritis, from social and emotional aspects of coping with rheumatoid arthritis to simple physical strategies you can use every day to manage things like pain and fatigue. You can find out more on my website, myarthritislife.net, where I also have lots of free educational resources, videos, and more. just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.